Um, this the concept of the wrath of God is one that we don't like to talk about a lot. Um, I did not come to faith in a fire and brimstone kind of way. It was not someone on a stage or in a small group or at a youth gathering telling me that I needed to turn from my wicked ways or burn forever in eternal damnation. That's not what won me to the Lord. That's not what opened my heart to the truth. I know some of you may have been in those situations, and some of you may have come to faith in that. That was not my story. My story was one of feeling love and overwhelming acceptance. Um, I don't know that I would have... I don't know that I would have received it any other way because that's where my life was. My life was in a place of not feeling loved, of feeling that love was conditional, that um, I, honestly, when I was, people told me about the love of Christ, I didn't feel that I was worthy, that I measured up, that there's no way that a loving God would ever want anything to do with me. Given my past as a high school sophomore and junior and the debauchery that I walked in and the ways that I did things against him, there is no way. Um, as I read the Bible and this this righteous, loving, caring creator could ever want to be with me. And then finally, at 17, someone really continued to press into that. And then the Holy Spirit just captured my heart one Sunday morning. It was actually Sunday afternoon. Captured my heart one Sunday afternoon and said, I love you. And I felt this wave of, of love and acceptance that just washed over me. And I was all in. Now, I was not anywhere near perfect. I mean, I'm pretty close now. But I was nowhere near then. Thank you for laughing. You know it's a joke. Um, but there was definitely, like, I, I, as I began to read the Bible, I never doubted my salvation. I've never doubted his love for me. From day one, that moment he opened, I've never doubted that. I have doubted his plan, what he's done, how he's doing it. Sometimes I think I'm a little smarter than God and I could do it better and different. And then I'm humbled in that. And it's not even close to being true. But then I encountered the parts of the word of God that talked about his wrath. And I didn't like them. I didn't like them at all. I didn't want to talk about it because I came to faith through love. And so I never wanted this, the, the, the idea of people that would reject him, would spend eternity from him, would be in a place of torment. And would never, ever have a chance to come to a faith in him. I didn't like it. I didn't want to talk about it. I avoided it completely. Give me loving, caring, awesome Jesus. Don't give me righteous Lord, breaking seals, calling on the four horsemen. I'm going to wipe this place clean once and for all. I don't didn't want that Jesus. And then I found myself, as I continued to learn more about the world, as I began to became a teacher of that, as I became a pastor, as I'm around people in the midst of their pain and suffering and suffering in the world. And then I began to long for the justice of God. I want some righteous wrath poured on this person. And I'd like this nation to have some wrath. Lord, could you please come judge them quickly? It all shifted. And I think it really came out of my heart of wanting people to know the Lord. And I don't like to see Innocent people suffer at the hands of people who are going to twist their lives in complete turmoil for greed and for pride. I can't stand it. Um, and so I think our struggle as Christians, as a church, is it's hard for us to hold both of those in the same hand. That we believe desperately in a loving, caring, giving God the good news of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, the good news of faith, a forgiveness of our sin, that no one is too far from God to receive that grace. No one. That the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy, a consistent rejection of the prodding of the Holy Spirit. Murder, the, the most heinous crimes, if you profess a faith in Jesus, you repent, you're saved. I love that part. But if we don't focus on the wrath too, then we become a bit one-sided in our faith. Now, it's dangerous to only focus on the wrath. Then we begin to say, fire and brimstone, you deserve it, eternal damnation, and we just go and go and go, and we become people like, I don't want to be around people like that. I like a healthy balance. I like people who are graceful, are full of grace, full of love, full of compassion, but also have a, an anger towards unrighteousness, a holy, righteous anger towards the oppressed. And we're hardwired for this. You, we all know it. You can't turn on the TV 
or open up the newspaper and not see somebody protesting something that they feel is an injustice. Wherever you land on it, if you think it's real or not real or whatever, there's people that feel they're angry, the angst rises, they have a passion for justice. They'll use those words. You turn on the TV on any given evening, and it's either Criminal Minds, NCIS, Law and Order, in a constant rotation on some channel. At any given time during the day, you can find one of those three shows in constant loop. And I, I need a dose of justice. Let's see what those Navy investigators are doing today. Click, right? It, or, oh, I want to hear that music when it goes from the law to the order. We can watch that. And we are hardwired for justice. Those shows wouldn't exist, wouldn't be on constant rotation if it wasn't for something in us as image bearers of God created by a just and righteous God. It's in us. We want that. We want it to be just and true. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the God of the Bible, as we're hardwired for justice, there's going to come a day when justice will pour out. That he's holding back his hand of wrath for now. But there's coming a time he's going to unleash his wrath on the planet. And all who don't profess a faith in Jesus will be standing in that wrath. That's hard sometimes to hold. We have to fight to hold both of those in the same hand. A loving, good, righteous God who is also concerned deeply for justice. And you know what would happen. I mean, it's... If there was a heinous crime in this county, someone has been murdered, has been, it's, it's obvious, the most grotesque, I'm not trying to describe it because it would be nightmares, something gross, something that, and there's camera footage, there's security footage, there's a confession, we know the jury is set in the jury pool, they come back with a guilty verdict, it's unanimous, it takes them 16 minutes to deliberate, and it's laid before the judge, and the judge looks at it and goes, I'm going to, I forget the term, I don't want to adjudicate. I'm going to, I'm going to set aside the verdict and I'm going to let this person go free. You're innocent of all charges. What would happen in this town? Well, things would get a little Western in the words of Joe Pickett, you CJ Box fans. Right? But that's exactly what God does for us. As Cole shared, our lives are wrought with rebellion, sin, from birth to death. The only thing that saves us is Jesus' work on the cross. He stands between the judge, the God the Father, God the Son, takes the sins of the world upon himself. And in that cross, you see this amazing, beautiful collision of grace and justice all heaped upon one person, the Son of God, God in flesh. So that we are given His righteousness and we are free of sin before the Father. Not because we don't still sin after we're saved, but because He wipes it away. He takes our payment. There has to be a payment for sin. It must be paid. So if Jesus isn't paying that penalty, the people who reject Jesus pay the penalty themselves. There's no other way to think about it. In spite of all the religions out there that try to say it just washes away or universalism or all, there's it's not true. There has to be a payment for sin or, G, or God is not just. He'll be an unjust judge. There must be payment. It's either Jesus or you. One of the two. And so when we hold this in our hand, it's pretty tough when we're walking through this Unless we, we have to work hard. Remember this chart I showed you last week? That as the seventh seal is opened, again, there's multiple ways of looking at this. I really like this bottom one because it makes the most sense for me. That as the seventh seal we talked about today is open, it coincides with the trumpets being blown and it coincides with the bowls being poured. That if we look at it, because we're going to open the seventh seal today, we're going to look at this, and the whole world is going, it's blowing up. And then we have some, well, but then we got some trumpets and we got some bowls. What, what about that? How do we put all these together? And for me, now I'm not saying these other ones are wrong, because this is just me. I think that the bottom idea is we open the seventh and the trumpets are happening, coinciding with the seventh, and then the bowls are poured out, coinciding with the seventh. That these are things that are, it's not, it's not a linear thing, it's kind of a 
melding of the two. It makes the most sense for me. And I'm just being honest, I could be completely wrong. But for me today, that's what I'm going to tell you. Five years from now, I'll restudy this all over again. I go, nope, I was completely wrong back then. Um, the top one's the right one. But for now, it seems to make the most sense to me. And the point of all of this isn't to get the numbers right. The point is to see that wrath is coming. That wrath is coming. Um, Warren Wiersbe, a pastor from quite a while ago, says this. If men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, then there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God. Well, that one sit for a second. And what I want you to see as we continue, as we go through these verses, it's less about understanding what are they doing? Where's that happening? What's that look like exactly? And it's more about the truth that if judgment's coming and people are outside of the love of God, they're going to suffer an unimaginable pouring of the wrath of God. And we have the answer of hope, Jesus. And please, like I told you before, you don't start with this. If you're talking to someone about faith, you don't walk in when you know. Revelation 6, towards the back end there, you're going to be crushed by a mountain. Um, you don't want that to happen, do you? Well, get you some Jesus. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's an insane way. Instead, you share your life. You share your testimony. You share your life before Jesus and your life after Jesus. And you put the, the spotlight on Jesus. That he's everything. That he's loving and caring. Yes, he's just, but with his love, you'll be outside of the wrath. Like, you need Jesus. You need hope. You need compassion. You need care. Don't start with revelation. But then if you have Jesus, and you hold him tight, then when you read these passages, you'll go, I don't know if I quite get that, but I'm so thankful that I have the Lord. I'm so thankful that I have Jesus. And then you, the compassion in your heart will swell because you want others to have him too. So, we start. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, the he is Jesus. Again, don't forget this. That Jesus is the one that's, that's pouring this out. Too many people try to put Old Testament God as the fiery, judgy one, and Jesus is the buddy Jesus who loves everybody, and he, Wears nothing against Birkenstocks, but he's clearly got on Birkenstocks and probably with socks. And he's, you know, he's that guy. He's like the, the funny, buddy, hippie Jesus. And it's not, yes, compassion, love, care, but wrath is coming. When he comes again, he's not coming to take a beating again. He's coming to be king. So verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. For the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So, the fifth seal's open, and then John, it, it, he gets to see this. Now, remember, he's, he's in this space. He's in this, he's seen the, the four living creatures, he's seen the four horsemen come in. Like riding in, like in an arena. And then when the fifth seals open, I don't believe that all of a sudden this just appeared, that it was there. But for this, in this instant, when the fifth seals open, his eyes are able to see what's right in front of his face. I don't think it's the fifth seal. I don't think it's like one of these movie cutscenes where it's like boom, boom, boom. He's not like zipping to different sections the whole time. It's not warp speed and from Star Trek going everywhere. It's, he is right there. The fifth seals open and he sees it. And what he sees is this altar. This altar that under it are the souls, which we can translate the word souls. Um, it, it really gets into the word psychic. This isn't, we don't believe, okay, there's two ways to look at this. Either it's the souls of the dead who have gone before and John's seen them at the foundation of worship and sacrifice under the altar. Or when you look at the Greek word, it's psyche here, when you look, it, it has a connotation of lies, that this is also, that this is everybody, not just those martyred for standing for their faith and being killed by a, an occupying force, this is every single life that has died in profession of faith is the foundation of this altar of praise. 
And I can see it both ways, and I'm okay with both ways. Um, the one that makes the most sense to me, because we'll get to in a second um, what's going to happen here, is that every person that has died on the planet fits into this place. It, people, There's lots of ideas of what this altar is. It's the altar of incense, the altar of... And you can dig into that. For me, what seems to be the most important is that the foundation of sacrifice before the Lord is made by the lives of those who believe in Christ, who have professed a faith in God, professed a faith in the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament, and those who have died in the church age refusing to denounce Christ or to say that the word is garbage. Instead, these are people who stand in the truth, the word of God, no matter what comes their way. That's pretty amazing. That as John's eyes are revealed, he's seen the four living creatures, he's seen, and then at the altar, where sacrifice, where worship, where the aroma of glory of God being praised, the foundation of it is the sacrifice of believers. And then you get this crying voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true. Again, just like the Lord's Prayer. Puts puts these people, these martyrs, these ones who've gone before in the right place. Holy God, you're in charge, you're in control, it's all about you. When are you going to fix this? When are you going to avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? When are you going to pour wrath on evil that has taken our lives and our brothers' and sisters' lives? When? But it's not a demand. It's an honest question put in the right context. You are holy. You are Lord. You are God. I am not. But I have something to say. I have something to say here. Now think of this. Think of all of the lies that go before. Like, I know in America especially, we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. We don't like to talk about these things because we live a very, compared to the rest of the world, we've got it really great here. Yes, there's poverty. Yes, there's problems. Yes, there's issues. But if you, if you spend any time in the rest of the world, even if you are completely destitute, you've got nothing you still have a way and access to get help. There's still a, a safety net relatively for you. Even those who are living on the streets in California and the homeless crisis they're having, they have avenues. There are soup kitchens. We're not living in a place where there's no food on the table. What do I do? There is no other option. You're going to starve. I don't have clean water here. I could walk a mile over here and go to a public park and find a, a swimming pool. It might be chlorinated, but I can get some water. Where do I get my water? There's none. It's filthy and dirty and people's toilets are upriver and you're drinking downriver. You're going to get sick and you're going to die. It's hard for us to fathom that. When's the last time this country's been through a massive, in our nation, in front of our faces, complete destruction? The Civil War? Now, we sent millions over to World War I, World War II, to Vietnam, to Korea, to Iraq, to Afghanistan, all over the world fighting. When's the last time it hit here? When's the last time an epidemic killed millions of people in our nation? To where we're sitting crying, why, Lord? We don't, but think about all of our brothers and sisters around the world. You hear about it constantly. Just a few weeks ago, we had the Voice of the Martyrs video on the screen talking about what's happening in North Korea. We've We've been, some of us have been to, whether it's in Belize or it's in, I've been to Nepal or to South Africa. Like what, what, think of what's happening. You have entire wars wiping out the South Sudanese and our brothers and sisters are there. And you've got the child soldiers and all these things happening. And we look at that and we all just go, what is going on? And as good Christian people, you have to take a step back and go, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? There's girls being trafficked. There's kids. What are you doing? That's just us who are watching it on a screen or reading about it. What if you're living in it? So when you see, when you read this, this isn't just, would you hurry up, God, and just do something? This is all of the angst that you feel. I mean, in this country, we're talking about politics and laws and policies and what's happening and these things and what's going on, and right? It builds in us. And none of us, 
I don't think any of you came to church today for fear that when you left here, there's going to be an IED in one of the cars out there that's going to take out a half a dozen of you. None of you are taking the mirrors out. None of you are crawling under your cars looking. We don't, we don't live in that kind of a fear that people, our brothers and sisters in the world, live like that. So when you read this, this isn't just, oh, Lord, i got some stuff to do. Could you hurry up and come back? This is all of that. The pain, the suffering for generations and generations and generations on this planet. And they're there, the foundation of worship saying, please make this right. When you talk to people from other countries besides the United States, they really like to talk about the wrath of God. A lot. Because it means that all their suffering is going to terminate in salvation and punishment for those who've done it. I think for us, we don't like to talk about it a whole lot because we're afraid we're going to be wrapped up in it. And so I drive you to the truth of the cross. You will not be in the wrath of God if you're his child. It's not for you. It's not for you. Verse 19. I skipped a bunch, didn't I? I'm sorry, this is Romans 12. Okay, sorry. A little bit of a brain flashing one. We'll call it that. Beloved, this is not, I wanted to get you to see where wrath come, where the punishment comes from. Now, I, I know that there are several gentlemen here in this church that if God so called me to start dishing wrath, wrath out onto people who would abuse, especially children, I could make a couple phone calls and I'd have about it. I think it'd be a lot of you, actually. Um, it wouldn't be much that if we had a word from the Lord that was maybe endorsed by the government slightly, um, we would go out and cause some havoc on some real evil people's lives. Thank you. But that's not for us to do. As much as that burns in me, we see very clearly Paul telling us in Romans, that's the work of God. He tells us in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he thirsts, give him something to eat. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now there's some debate on what the heap burning coals means. Um, it seems that this is, it, it seems bad to have coals put on your head. Um, but there's kind of a, a custom in the Middle East. There's a cultural connection that says, um, you would go to ask your neighbor, if your fire went out, you want to keep your fire going. If your hearth goes out, you would go to your neighbor and ask for some hot coals and you would carry things on your head like in a basket. So there's, I don't know that part. It makes sense that says if your enemy is hungry, feed him and thirsty, to give him some drink. For by doing so, you will heap coals on his head. You're helping them. It's like helping your neighbor. Um, now, I've always read it that that means by helping them, I'm causing them to realize that they're doing wrong. But anyway, the point is, Vengeance is the Lord's. And as much as I want that call from God to go put the hurt on evil, what God has for them is infinitely worse. And because God offers the gospel to all, even the most evil in the world have come to a faith and come to a place of repentance, ask for forgiveness, they will be with us in heaven. Now, I know that doesn't sit very well with some of you, because it doesn't sit very well with me sometimes. But if I believe that the grace of God is for me, then I have to believe the grace of God is for all who would call on his name, no matter how evil they are on this planet. Because if I'm going to start differentiating and eliminating certain people because of my ideas of judgment, then I need to move myself out of the shadow of the cross as well. And I am not God, and so I don't have that authority. Vengeance is his. So think as Paul's writing this to the Roman-occupied church, saying, do not seek vengeance, do not seek revenge. God has something infinitely worse for them. Payment will come when he comes back. So, we continue. Verse 11. There it is. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So this isn't, and I know this seems a little odd out of this, but what, what Jesus is doing in this moment, what John's witnessing this picture, 
is that even though they've suffered and been martyred and they're longing for justice, God, through Christ, has given them the righteousness of the king. This isn't, this isn't a consolation prize. Well, you've asked me a question. You want the wrath of God to be dished out. Here's your nice robe. It's not like the consolation prize from The Price is Right or something like that. It's not what happens here. This is Jesus acknowledging their frustration, acknowledging their martyrdom, acknowledging their faithfulness, and helping giving, he's giving them a visual representation of their pureness. And he says, as you're getting this robe, rest a little longer. It's coming. I'm, it's going to happen. And trust me, vengeance will happen. But for a season, not yet. We see in First Peter, I think it's three. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. Um, but you can look it up later. That God holds back his hand of wrath. He holds back the hand of judgment until all would hear and have the opportunity to be saved. Now, people disagree on what this exactly means. Um, does this mean every people group gets a chance? Every single person on the planet gets to have to hear the word of God? Um, we see that the, in Romans there's a conflict there because Romans says even nature should help people to see that Jesus is the one that should come to faith in God even by what they see around them. So, for me, what I think is going on is that we people need the opportunity to come to Christ. And when everyone on the planet, when that has been exhausted on the planet, then Jesus returns. Now, what's really interesting and kind of gets me into the thinking about we're getting closer is that as language barriers drop, like we're losing languages every year around the world and people are coming into just a few dozen languages become the language of the planet. As we now have access to unreached people groups through technology, through travel. I mean, think 300 years ago. You can't just go drop. You're going to have your big sailboat and make it everywhere. Like everyone's going to have scurvy and die. No, that's the Oregon Trail. Sorry. Like there's, there's, going to be, there's going to be problems there. And now as the world becomes smaller because of technology and travel, and as people groups' languages begin to combine or, or come together or are almost wiped out by English and Chinese and things spreading around, then... We have a, we're that much closer. So for me, I often, when people ask, what about the signs? And is it Iran from the north coming down and conquering? And what's going to happen? Are we at the end times? I usually just tell people, well, that's all. I love to dig into that. That's fun for me. But what we should really do is send missionaries out because if everyone hears the name of Christ, then he can finally come back. So instead of being all worried about, you know, making new movies and doing stuff, just take that money and effort and go teach people about Jesus. When the opportunity arises, for everyone to hear the gospel, then he'll come back. That hand gets unleashed. And we get to be with Jesus. So, those who have been, um, he's telling them to wait a little longer. Um, there's a Greek word here it, for completed. The word here for complete kind of leads us to think that this isn't just those who've been martyred, but it's all who die continuing to profess a faith in Christ unto death. That it means there's going to be more and more added to the foundation of worship until the final end, until the final day. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So the sixth seal is open, and something catastrophic happens on the planet. A massive earthquake to where it causes the sun to become black like a sackcloth. Sackcloth for mourning is often, um, it was a black sheepskin. It's where we get the kind of the tradition of the mourning clothes, or the, the funeral clothes, the mourning clothes of wearing black. And so this is pitch black. And then the full moon became like blood and the stars fell from the sky. The word here for stars um, really says heavenly body. So it, it doesn't mean literally the sun is going to fall. Because if the sun falls, there's nothing left of the planet. You know that, right? The sun's pretty big. Stars are pretty huge. But this is something, there's going to be some kind of a picture where the whole world is blacked out. The moon is going to glow in the midst of this. And then there's going to be things falling from the sky. Something's going to be falling. Now, um, since we live in Wyoming, one of the first things you think of is the Wyoming super volcano. Right? When that thing blows the next week or whenever it is. It seems like it changes. As soon as a buffalo runs left instead of right, oh, it's happening, we're all going to die. 
Um, there's something going, but then something's going to happen, a great shaking, a great earthquake, the sky's blacked out, the moon looks completely different, there's a full moon kind of an effect, we don't, I don't, something, and then stuff falls from the sky, is this volcanic ash blocking, and then fire and rock, is it, but this has to be something cataclysmic, this whole planet sees, there's something massive going to happen, is it, Ash and dust cause the moon to look a certain way. I mean, for the last couple of years, we've seen seen a few blood moons, red moons have come out. Is that the is it the precursors to this? Is it, what are we doing? I don't know. All I know is when this happens, we're going to know it. We're going to know it. The Earth is shaking. The sun is no longer there because it's blacked out, and the moon's glowing bright, and then things are falling from the sky. I think we're going to know that when it's happening. It's not going to be, I wonder. The whole planet's shaking like crazy, and it's all, we're all going to die, but uh, is this it? I'm not sure. We're going to know. We're going, now, and then, okay, take it back to last week. You believe in the pre tribulation rapture? We won't know. We won't be there. But all those who are left will know. Or if it's mid, then anyway, that's a whole nother. Okay, we'll move on. The signs are threefold. That the earthquake and a storm affect the sun and the moon. Something cataclysmic on this planet are going to affect the moon. Now we've all been, uh, like if you grew up in, in an agriculture area, and it happens here too, like the beautiful sunsets we have that are just unbelievable. Now there's certain times of the year they're different. Like I know, like we, I can't stand the summer fire season, just like the rest of you, and the smoke hits. Sometimes those sunsets are pretty amazing, aren't they? And then if you grew up in a more agricultural area in the fall, when the harvesters hit and there's dust in the air and then those sunsets. So we, we know that things in the air can affect the sunrise, the sunset, even the moon. We know that. So whatever's happening here, one of the phases is the, earth, the moon and the sun will be affected by this. And so we're gonna, it's going to be a sign that the whole planet can see when this happens. Um, the impaired light is going to make things dark. And then things are going to fall. There's going to be something. I don't know what this means. I don't know if this is the earth shakes, it's the magnetic poles are shifting, and satellites are in space, they're all going to come crashing to the ground. And like all of those make perfect sense to me. A tectonic shift, the poles shift, the, the, the magnetic pole becomes greater than the earth, and we suck all the ATT satellites into the planet, and they're falling, and the whole world sees this happen. That seems pretty logical to me. And we live in the right time for all that to happen. I don't know. I'm not saying it's next week. Don't put that on me. I'm not predicting it. I'm just saying. It seems that there's things happening between the sharing of the gospel and things in the planet that it's all coalescing. Now, that could be 3,000 years from now. I don't know. But if it's next week, that would be kind of cool. You don't think so? I found that artists kind of trying to render this of a red thing and what. You, if you Google a little bit online, you're going to find a million things. Don't Google too much because it gets weird fast. But I don't know what it's going to look like. Verse 12. When you open this, I already said that. When you open the sixth seal, we have this happening, and then we get to 14. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That's a massive global earthquake. And I don't know if you, think, you I don't know if you know this or not, but if an earthquake does hit the San Andreas Fault in California, California does not break off and float to Hawaii. Like, you know that people say, you know California's gonna fall off of the No. There'll be a giant crevice and it'll be like there's a there's potential there, but there's still gonna be like that don't be silly. Did you pay attention to Earth and Space Science class at all in high school? It's not gonna float away. Islands, you do you know this, right? Hawaii, islands, they don't float. You know this, right? Okay, so I hope. If not, then we've got some work to do in the educational system of America. Now, what this verse is saying is every mountain and island is removed from its place. Toppling mountains. Islands broken off from their foundation to the seabed floor and crumbling into the ocean, not floating away. That this cataclysmic event happening on the planet 
everything is being, I mean, you've heard the phrase, like, when all hell breaks loose. Well, I don't know if this is all hell breaking loose, but this is, the whole planet is completely being devastated. You think every tsunami, earthquake, forest fire, everything you've ever seen all coming together at once globally. To where islands fall, crumble, mountains shake, it's all torn asunder. Now, that's why it's when we have one natural disaster, I know people start going, this is it, this is the one. What I see here in Revelation is this is a, a global phenomena that there's no coming back from. There's no coming back from this. This is total earthwide devastation and destruction. So when we see a tsunami here or global warming there or this over here, like those, yeah, those are those are disasters and things we should care about and press into and help but when this happens this is a total shutdown of the planet the last couple of verses coincide with Jesus' character and God's character we find throughout all of scripture in Acts we see that he shows no favoritism God doesn't have a pecking order of how many likes you have in your social media accounts whether he loves you more that's not how God works we also see in James 2, if you show favoritism, you commit sin. And even God himself showing favoritism would be him sinning. And he cannot be sinning. He's perfect. So when the final destruction comes, we have to deal with the fact that all the stuff that we, deal, we work so hard for today matters zero. That in the day of judgment, your position in life doesn't matter. Just because you got a fancy jet or something, or maybe you have no money. And you can, because you see the opposite. It's both sides of the pride coin. I'm so rich, I can do whatever I want. I've got nothing, I can do whatever I want. And the whole point is you just want to do what you want. You're prideful. We're all prideful. And so in this moment of judgment, position in life doesn't matter. Social, social status doesn't matter. Divine judgment's coming for everyone. It's coming for everybody. He's going to dish out judgment. On all who would refuse to follow him. You've chosen idols and false gods instead of him. You've walked away from the word of God because you think you're smarter than God. And you've got it figured out more than God. Judgment's coming for all who don't love Christ. So, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Now this is where it gets to people. The seventh seal is the realization that I am not in control. The breaking of this seal brings devastation on the earth, which leads to an understanding that I cannot control my own destiny. I am not in charge. And this goes for every, he paints a picture. Kings of the earth and the great ones. The ones that will, they hear the rumors of war, it's happening, and they just sit back in their bubble baths and just go, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's all okay. It's fine. That's for those people over there. They're dealing with it. This is coming for everybody. For everybody. It doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter your status as slave or free. It doesn't matter, poor, rich, titled, educated, it doesn't matter. Judgment is coming. And then we get the foolish endeavor. Where people are so prideful, stuck in their ways, denouncing God, but they, they will not repent. And instead they say, mountains crush us, so we don't have to sit in the judgment of God. They would rather be smashed by mountains than to admit that Jesus is king. They're also avoiding the wrath that's coming. It's, it's better to be smothered by a mountain than to stand in the judgment. That sounds pretty bad to me. I mean, people have survived avalanches in the snow, but being having a mountain fall upon you seems like something you don't get back from. Be wrong, but I, you know, 
There's a couple Lifetime movies about that, I'm sure, but I don't think there's really, you can't come back from that. And so people are running to the mountains. They go to caves and the rocks and they call on the mountains, fall on us, because I don't want to see the face of the lamb. Would you even get that? The wrath of the lamb? You think of lambs as very wrathful? Not really. But this is the lamb of God. That's why I have to hold Jesus in that, that delicate place of being the lamb who was slain, but the lion who comes to judge. They're one and the same. It was really hard for me to um, really reconcile a loving God. The question is always asked, how can a loving God send people to hell? Right? You've heard that before more than once. If you have been a person of faith for any length of time, you've probably thought that thought yourself. How can this loving God? You've got you to change up your language. God's not sending anybody to hell. What's happening here is a picture of how hell works. The only unforgivable sin is what? Blasphemy. Which, when we press into that, is a consistent rejection of the wooing of the Holy Spirit. A consistent, I feel a little bit of God, I feel, no, I don't want any part of that. I live my own life, I'm doing it my way. No, I don't, no, I don't want any part of that. So, if that's the only unforgivable sin, it's exactly what's happening here. Fall on us. Hide from us the face. We don't see people in this moment crying out in this time of their final breath. I'm sorry, Lord. I was wrong. I heard about you. I did nothing with you. Please forgive me. Please to accept my repentance right now in this moment. Instead, they go, nah, we're not do that. I'd rather be crushed by a mountain than be judged by... That's a foolish endeavor anyway, because if they get crushed by the mountain, they still get judged. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't really work that way. You, you're still, you still have an eternal soul that will be judged, and you're going to go to hell. Gehenna, eternal suffering. So you got, you got to change the language in your brain, and when you talk to people, people ask that question: How can a, and they, uh, that's the wrong question. How could a just and righteous God ever accept the love of Christ, the sacrifice of the cross, and take away my sin? How can he be so loving is the correct question. How can he, how can he, never, how can he spend eternity <clears throat> never giving up on me? How can he accept me for who I am in the midst of all? That's the question. But people focus on this one. How could a loving God? No. How could a righteous God ever love you? Because of Jesus. Because of him. So when you see, this paints a picture for us that even... In that moment, even in the moment of destruction and facing judgment, people refuse to repent. There's not going to be anybody in hell that's going to say, come on, God, I did everything right. What are you doing? You made a mistake. There's going to be a single person in hell like that. Now, it could be lots of people filled with, with regret, with I'm not sure, with what happened. But we get a picture in a parable from Jesus where you have Lazarus. And the rich man. And the rich man is in hell. Lazarus is in heaven. And the rich man says, Lazarus, give me some water. And people try to think this parable is all about us communicating with people in heaven and hell. And can we do that? The whole point of the parable is that people that are in hell don't change. They don't change. The rich man is in hell because of his pride, his presumption upon Lazarus, how he lived his life. He refused to repent. He did not believe in Jesus. And Jesus gives us this parable to show us that people who are in judgment don't change. And we get a picture of that here. Fall on us. Hide us. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to admit I'm wrong. But just kill me so I can be judged. Now, that's the other part of this. Being crushed by a mountain is better than being judged by Christ. That should help us to see the terrible nature of his judgment. And it should cause us, during times of communion, during times of worship, during times of prayer, to be ever the more thankful for our salvation being secured by Christ on the cross. It should turn to praise for those who put their faith and trust in it doesn't mean you got it all figured out. It's not what I'm saying. 
you come to faith in Christ, and then you spend your entire life studying the Bible, figuring things out, listening to the Holy Spirit. If it was about being perfect in knowledge, none of us are saved. It's not what it's about. It's about saying, I understand the depths of my own sin. I understand the depths of my depravity. I need a Savior. Jesus, you're my King. Thank you. And then you move into the rest. Your whole life. There's still, like even when we're going through Revelation, I thank the good Lord for smart people who wrote books that are way better than me. Thank God for smart men and women in my life to help me see stuff. Terry, who we prayed for, comes up and goes, hey, you know, you talk about the heaping coals. Did you know about this? And so I quickly jumped in my Bible software. I'm like, what? What's she talking about? He was right. She didn't come at me with correction. She came at me with like, hey, have you ever heard this theory? And I shared it with you 20 minutes after studying. Even when I think I know it, someone in this church who's heard something usually comes alongside sometimes in a kind way goes, you ever thought about it this way? And I go, gosh, I stink. That's the beauty of growing in our faith and learning about God together. And if that's the beauty of growing in faith and knowledge, then people that expect to have it all figured out before they would profess their faith in Christ are always going to find that lacking. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. It's about faith in Christ. I believe the depths of my sin. I believe that He's a Savior. I put my faith and trust in Him. And I trust it will help me figure the rest out for the rest of my life. And the stuff he doesn't help you figure out, you'll find out about it in heaven. So, we're left with a couple questions. We're either going to stand with Jesus in salvation, or we're going to stand before him in judgment. We're either going to rejoice in grace, or we're going to be terrified at his wrath. Faith isn't a, it's an on-off switch. You're either saved by grace, or you're not. There is no, you know, I've been reading that, and I think eventually one day, I'm kind of there, I'm almost there, you're still not there. Now, you might be being compelled by the Holy Spirit. He reveals some things to you. You've got some hesitation. God opens you up to this part. That's how he's worked in my life. It's not. It's one moment of salvation and a million awakenings to truth. Always. I've never doubted my day of salvation. I've never doubted salvation. I've never doubted that. I've had problems with the Bible. I've had problems with the church. I've had lots of problems with people. I've had problems with an understanding of this translation, of this interpretation. I've had problems with that. And God has opened me up and awakened me through books and movies and people and sermons and conferences for my whole faith journey. But my day of salvation is a singular moment. And then he continues help us grow in all those ways. But salvation is a one-time, one-deal thing. Are you ready to stand with Jesus? There's no do-over. Craig Keener says, he's a New Testament scholar, the impact on the reader is complete. There is no security, no firm ground to stand on. Nothing in the universe depend, to depend on except God himself. The rest of creation will collapse. That's what we see in these last three seals. All of creation collapsing. So, we're left with this. you got a choice. Grace or wrath. Salvation, forgiveness, or condemnation. It's like a switch. Not a rheostat or a dimmer switch. Or I got a little bit of Jesus, still a little dark. Got a little bit, I'm almost saved, I'm caught. It's, it's a switch. You're either his child or you're not. And when you're his child, you then grow. You grow into these things. And if you've got questions and doubts, and things you don't get, things you don't like, things you've been burnt by the church, burnt by people, you can't stand any words that come out of my mouth. Don't let that get in the way of a faith in God, a belief in Jesus, and a hope in the cross. 
That's a, that's a supernatural event that happens with the power of the Holy Spirit where he captures your heart and you submit to him in this beautiful moment and then you're saved. You're his child. You're part of the kingdom. And then you will spend the rest of your life until he comes back or you die learning more and more about him. Don't start in Revelation. Don't start in Numbers. Don't start in Romans. Hang out in the Gospels. Hang out with Mark or John. Learn how Jesus loved and cared and dealt graciously with people who would open their arms and open their minds to him and how he couldn't stand the religious elite who tried to pile rules on people. Hang out with Jesus for a season. Then you will come to a faith in him and then you can begin to dig into the other stuff. And as a guy who's been walking with the Lord for a couple decades, but I don't have it all figured out. I wish I did, but I don't. But my trust in him has never wavered since 17. So the question I ask for you, are you going to stand in grace or in wrath? And once you've answered that question for yourself, the people around you that you love and care for, if the wrath of God is as terrible as we just saw described, do you want any of the people you care so much about to be in that wrath? I'd say the answer is no. So then what do you need to do to help them to receive the grace of God? Is it you sharing your testimony, you being forgiving, you opening yourself up to that conversation? If they're very antagonistic, then are you in prayer for them? Do you pray for them daily? Do you... Do you Go before the Lord, praying for the Holy Spirit to soften them for the moment that they will come to faith? Or do you just take a step back and go, eh, they're kind of difficult people. I'll just leave them in God's hands. That's a, if you really believe in the God of the Bible, the God of love and grace and the God of wrath and justice, you can't just take that approach. It must be a place of prayer and conversation. Do you really love them? First question is for you, as you're here with me today. Where will you stand? But don't let the enemy whisper in your ear. Don't let the enemy do that. If you profess a faith in Christ, you're his child, and no one can take that from you. Where will you stand?